sure do appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. It's been about three years since we were here, so I guess I could say I stood, you, stood before you a younger man back then. <laughs> but it's great to see you. You know, something we don't do a lot of times is actually tell people, thank you for coming and worshiping God. And when you think about that song, How Deep the Father's Love, I cannot help but think how many people are missing the opportunity to come and worship Him. Praise God Almighty. And in our society, sometimes I just like to say thank you for uplifting me by being here. And when you look at your brothers and sisters, you ought to thank them too. Because when you're not here, you are missed. We want to talk today about Josiah. We're going to talk, we'll see if we can get this working as well as Brian did. I told Brian, Brian says, are you ready? I said, Brian, they're all going to leave after you get done. But I'm glad you stick around. You know, we're going to talk about lessons from Josiah. And if you will, you can turn your Bibles over to 2 Kings, verses, or chapters 21, 22, 23. You can follow along. I'm not going to read all that. That's a lot of reading. But if you would allow me to kind of tell it in story form, and then we're going to ask ourselves some questions. But we're going to ask, first of all, this. Is our heart right with God? Let's just start with that question. Is our heart right with God? When you see the reading or, or understand the reading of 1 Kings 13, there's a prophecy that goes on there saying that there's going to be this Josiah that's come. He's going to be a child and he's going to come and there's going to be something going on on the altars. He's actually going to offer priests upon the altars. That's what he's going to do. And you got to remember, that's being prophesied because at that time, there was evil that seemed to be good, and good was called evil, or good was called evil, and evil was called good, bitter was called sweet, sweet was called bitter, and light was called darkness, and darkness was called light, Isaiah 5.20. During the times of the kings, you can count on your hands the number of kings that were called righteous. Now this Josiah... It's interesting, we're going to meet him when he's about eight years old. But what's interesting about that part, before we even get into Josiah, is knowing, let's go to the end of Josiah, where there was not a king like him before, or not a king like him afterwards. And so that's Josiah we're going to talk about. No king like him before, no king like him since. And since that time, what we can do is look at Josiah and say, who is this child? Who is this one that's being prophesied? Well, we'll find that his grandfather was Manasseh, who was a very evil king. Might have been one of the most evil, might have been the most evil, we don't know. Mitch and I were kind of talking about that uh, earlier today. He is an evil king. Manasseh came through and he starts changing things and he does things different than what the Lord wants done. He does them, but yet he still has places for things to be offered. He still has places for things where people can do their worship. And all of a sudden, evil is called good. I want you to remember that because as we get into the so what part of the lesson, this is going to apply to us. Then we find that Manasseh does so bad that he passes away. But Manasseh was a king at 12 years old. Then you have Ammon coming on. That is the father of Josiah. He was about 22 and he only reigned for two years. And even after his father Manasseh was taken away by the Assyrians, put into Babylon in captivity... Manasseh repents. You know, you put me in jail for doing something wrong, and you have me that way, all of a sudden my heart starts changing, doesn't it? You put us in a bad situation, and we start thinking a little bit differently. 
So did Manasseh. But unfortunately, the consequences of Manasseh's leadership of letting the people do what was evil and leading them to do what, people, what was evil in God's sight, unfortunately, that, that consequence or those consequences carried on even after Manasseh repented. I think of that and think, what about the consequences of our sin? What about the consequences how they live on and on and on? And we have to think about that because they do live on. And we have to think about Manasseh being a great example for us of how we can do things wrong. We may repent, but the consequences of that sin may not outlast us at all. We may outlast those consequences. And then we see that Josiah's father comes, and he goes back and does everything his father did. Not repent, but goes back before his father repented and does all the evil things. Sets them all back up again. And so you have to think, just as Brian was teaching us today about home, you have to think about this and say, fathers, we better watch what we're doing because there are those watching us. And they may continue to do what they wanted to do of what they saw of us. And the repentance that Manasseh brought was not what his son was going to do. And then so after just serving two years, Josiah's father is taken out and killed. And so Josiah comes on the scene as eight years old. I was trying to think when I was eight years old. At my age, it's hard to think back what I did yesterday, much less to eight years old. But at eight years old, maybe second or third grade. So just think about that. Think about the new king. I started to say something about, could we use a president that was only in the second grade? And I would say yes, but that was not the thing that I need to say. The new king is only eight years old. The first eight years of his life, we don't know exactly what happened, but when he was 16, things start happening. So either Shaphan, the scribe, or Hilkiah, the priest, helped develop him. And at 16, Josiah starts doing some things. And we're going to see these things in just a moment, but let's go with the story for him first. And Josiah, as he sees things and he starts doing things, what we find is all of a sudden he's doing them different than Manasseh or his father Amos. He's doing them according to what he believes is right in God's eyes. And so they start doing these things. He starts getting rid of some of the things that Manasseh had set up that Amon reinstated after Manasseh's repentance. He starts going along and he gets to the point of where he wants the, the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And so he arranges for that to occur. And they find the book of God there, the book of the law. And it's read to him by Shaphan the priest. Tilkiah finds it, gives it to Shaphan. Shaphan then reads it. And as a result of that, Josiah rents his clothes, tears them. And he says, go, seek out. I need to know about this because we've not been doing what the Lord wants. So they go to a prophetess, Hodiah. And she says, here's what's going to happen. This people, this land, this nation, going to be basically taken into captivity. It's going to be gone. And you will not see it because of your faithfulness. I want us to remember that. So Josiah goes on and he starts and he restores the Passover. 
Now this is an interesting thing to me because when he restores the Passover, efforts go through there, the scriptures say he restored the Passover and there was no Passover like it ever before. You ever attended a worship service like that? Where you just walked away from that worship service and said, that was a worship service. When we sung that song, 448, when you sang that song, I want you to know something. You're singing a song that turns me inside out. And I think to myself, and it's emotional, I think to myself, God gave his son for me. And I'm looking at faces that God gave his son for you. How deep the father's love. Josiah evidently understood something about the father because he restored the Passover in such a way it had never been done like that before. And so he made a commitment as the law was read and made the people commit to it that we will follow the law of the God. We will follow that. So what does this mean to us? Sometimes you have the so what. That's a great story, Steve. We can find that in the Old Testament. What's that mean? Well, Romans 15, 4 talks about things like things written aforetime were written for our instruction and our learning. Well, what can I learn from that? What is it that I need to know about that? I need to know about the lessons from Josiah. There's only two slides in this lesson, basically. And what's going to happen is we're going to go through six things Josiah learned and six things we better think about. So if you look at the very first one, Josiah made a decision to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Turn over with me to 2 Kings, and if you're there, and I hope you are, let's follow along. We're not going to do a reading of the whole thing of 2 Kings, but I want us to pick out some verses here. In 2 Kings 22, in verse 2, look what he says. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. I want to suggest to you something, and this may seem strange. We may need to make a decision that we're going to do what is right in the sight of the Lord before we do anything else about God. I hear people say, I want to accept Jesus as my personal Savior. I want to be baptized. Sometimes I want to stop them and say, have you decided to do what is right in the sight of the Lord, if you decided to do that, some of the terminology of accepting Jesus as my personal Savior and these type of things, they go by the wayside. I want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. That's what Josiah wanted to do. What did he do? Everything else followed underneath that. Is this right in the sight of the Lord? I want you to remember that as we come to the next slide. The other thing that we can learn from Josiah is he was committed to God in verses 8 through 20. And basically what it means by that is, as you look down through there, he did everything he knew he was supposed to do that God wanted him to do. He went on down through. And as we come down through it, he says, as he looks at it and you go through the temple and you go through all of that, what he did was he did what he knew what was right in the sight of the Lord because he was committed to God. We could ask ourselves the question, what does commitment mean? Well, Josiah wanted to do what was right in the sight of the Lord means if I'm going to do that, I'll be committed to do that. Committed means I will not sway from it to or fro. 
I'm going to do exactly what God wants me to do. In fact, I'm going to do it so well that I'm going to remember His words and I'm going to be committed to His words. Look at over at 2 Kings 23 and verse 3. It says here, Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep His commandments and His testimonies, His statutes, with all His heart, all His soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. Let me ask this. That's a king standing before making that covenant. Notice the last part of that? Look at the last part of that verse. Now, brethren, sometimes I get excited and ask you to read something for me. Now, Sean, I'm going to tell you something. You're young. You're great because I listen to your sermons. I wish I was listening to it right now. The old-time preachers used to have a reader. They did it. You, you got 2 Kings 23 there? You look at verse 3, and I want you to read the last sentence in that verse for me loud. I know you can be loud, but go ahead and do it. My translation says, all the people entered into the covenant. So brethren, if your elders stood before you, read the first part of this 23rd verse, and said, all of the flock here will take this covenant, what would you do? What would you do? That's exactly what the king did. All the people. I think of that sometimes and think, what an amazing thing. And all the people. I had a fifth grade teacher that attended Greenwood or preached. And every time I come to that little word, A-L-L, I said, do your fifth graders understand what that means? He said, yeah. I said, what's it mean? It means everything, all. There's no other definition. We know what all means, right? All the people, not one, all. And so when we think of that, Josiah was committed to God's words. Whatever God wanted him to do, because he was committed to doing right in the eyes of God, he was committed to the God himself, whatever the words of God are, since I'm committed to doing what's right, and I'm committed to God, whatever your words are, I will fall down, I will do whatever, I will follow them. What about us? That's the question that comes to me. What about us? But look over at 2 Kings 23 in verse 4 beginning all the way through 20. And we won't read that either. I hope that you do on your own maybe this afternoon. But he was committed to God's worship. God had a way that he wanted them to worship. A lot of the evil kings had places to worship. They set up these different places, set up different ways, different things, making it more convenient. To worship God. God says, this is the way I want you to worship. Josiah then is committed to doing God's worship God's way. Why? We're going to do a little review. First point, he decided to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was committed to God. He was committed to God's word. And he was committed to God's way of worship. It's an amazing thing. When we commit to God and we say we're going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord... Everything else falls into place. How does God want us to worship? That's how we'll do it. Period. We won't change it one way or the other. Then, if you looked at 2 Chronicles 34, 1-21, he was committed to restore a nation. We're going to talk more about this in the second slide, but I want us to get this point. He was committed to restore a nation. Did the nation 
there need to be restored. Absolutely. They were still suffering from the issues of Manasseh, Amon his father. They were still having these things where the people themselves were struggling. Good seemed evil. Evil seemed good. Evil worship seemed good to them. I think in Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. Strange fire was being offered up as worship, basically. And what you see is, Josiah says, we'll just restore the nation. That's what needs to be done. What is it that it's talked about in Proverbs 34, 14? Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. Josiah is living that. We're going to make this nation more righteous. We're going to make this nation committed to God. The people have made that covenant we're going to do that, and we're going to restore this nation. The last thing that I want us to learn from Josiah, he was committed to, to accomplish God's will in a time where sin seemed righteous. We've kind of hit that. There's a lot of us, I want to start to say older ones, but there's a lot of us, period, that should all of a sudden have some thoughts come into our head, we're living in a time much like Josiah lived in. We're living in a time where sin seems righteous. We're living in a time where good seems evil. We're living in a time when evil seems good. We're living in a time when light seems dark. And dark seems light. We're living in that time. Josiah decides, hey, I'm going to seek to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to be committed to God. I'm going to be committed to God's word. I'm going to be committed to God's worship. I'm going to do all of those things. And when you look down here, he says, I'm going to restore this nation to God. Even in a time when it's the toughest way to do it is when sin seems righteous. What a king. What a dedication of a person. No matter what the odds Satan throws to me, we're going to restore a nation to be righteous in the eyes of God. An amazing thing. But, so what, Steve? So what? What's that mean to me? Well, you might look at this and go, well, we just changed lessons. We've changed over to why I need a merciful God. Look back at Deuteronomy 4, verse 31. Deuteronomy 4, verse 31. And what we find in Deuteronomy, it says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to you. That's our God, our Father. Look over Luke 6, verse 36. Luke 6 and verse 36. Jesus himself says here, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Look at 18. Luke 18 and verse 13. Luke 18 and verse 13. And a tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Why do I need a merciful God? We've been talking about Josiah. We've been talking about his commitment to the Lord. His commitment to the, all that God wanted him to do. Restoring a nation in a time when sin seems righteous. Why would I bring up a need a merciful God? Because she, I may not be doing or being committed to be doing what's right. I may say I want to do what's right, but I may not be committed to that. I may tell you I want to do what's right. I may do what's right sometimes, but I may not be committed to doing right all the time. Oh, Steve, now you know that's not right. We're all committed to doing that, right? Tax time. Not everything right on those tax forms? Or do we play the game sometimes government? They'll never find this out. Ever been audited? And I use that to say, if we're committed to what's right, we don't even question. We just do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. What does he expect of us? Ever bring home that extra pencil from the office that's got the office's name on it you're supposed to leave there? Those are simple things, aren't they? Colossians 3.17, whatever, in the, in the, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Look over to Matthew, the 7th chapter, and this is probably one that I put in because, you see, when I preach, I preach to myself. As one brother said, Steve, if you're preaching to yourself, I may not need that. Well, then don't listen. But I need it. Matthew 7, 1 through 6, Judge not that you be not judged. With what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. You know what? So let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. There was a man who had his father's wife. We're not to judge. But Paul there says that he's already judged the situation and that this one needs to be turned over to Satan so that his spirit might be saved. So all of a sudden we've got a conflict, right? You can't judge, but you've got to judge. I've already made this judgment. See, what happens is we need to make sure we're judging the actions and not the heart. And while I'm committed to doing what's right, I may be the first one to start judging a heart. Somebody might come forward, confess their sins. We might say they just did that two months ago. Their heart's not right. Wasn't heart right? Wasn't heart, their heart wasn't right then. I'm reminded of a brother back in Louisville that had a real issue with alcohol. And he was sorry. He just couldn't overcome it. But he would come forward. They'd pray. People would cry. Tears. Because they knew it was eating at him. You know, there's an old saying, you need to walk a mile in their shoes. Sometimes we have difficulty staying faithful to the Lord. We need to work on that. But the worst thing can happen is when our brothers and sisters start trying to judge our heart, which that's God's job, not ours. And we need to look at the actions of people. 
Now, if I go up here and I start hitting Brother Craig over the head with the psalm book, you might say, now, Steve, I don't think that's right. <laughs> but we don't judge heart. I may be committed to doing right, but I may be sitting around with my brothers and sisters talking about other brothers and sisters because I'm trying to judge their hearts and trying to get these folks over here to help me do that. And so while I'm saying I am committed to doing what's right, I have to ask myself, am I really committed to doing what's right? Or am I committed to do what's right in my own eyes and want to make sure that God accepts what I think is right? And so we look at this. That's a lesson I learned from Josiah. Make sure I'm committed to doing all that is right in the eyes of God. Leave this other stuff alone. Just do what is right in the eyes of God. How do I know what's right in the eyes of God? Well, why don't I study His Word? Why don't I attend services? Why don't I attend Bible studies? Why don't I call up brothers and sisters and say, I need some help. Let's study with me on this. Why don't I do that? I may not be committed to God. You say, what? Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Look over at Hebrews 12. Look at verses 3 through 11. And this is one of my favorite passages. There's a lot of passages that are favorite passages. But this is about something that we don't like. But in Hebrews 12, verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Let's just stop right there. We want the Lord to love us, right? I wrote an article one time that says, Slap my hand and let me go to heaven. Say nothing and I'll go to hell. Long title, isn't it? You can imagine how long the article was. But when you look at this, chasten. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Lord loves those he chastens. He cares about us. You see children running around, and you look at them and say, sometimes they're going to get chastened. That's because the parents love them. Not abuse them, but chasten them. My dad was a World War II veteran. He believed and spared the rod spoiled the child. The rod was his short, stubby hand with an arm on it. And when he struck, he struck. And he always let me know, I love you, son, but you need this. And when I think of that, I think about how much he loved me. He loved me a lot. And when you look at this, for the Lord, love, Lord loves, he chases. Whom the Lord loves, he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us and paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be take partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. 
Nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Am I committed to God? Do I like to be chastened by God's word? Do I love the fact that my godly or that my heavenly Father is a God who looks down and says, "Steve, I'm going to send Brother Craig or Brother Rick or Brother Mitch or Brother somebody. I'm going to send somebody to explain to you this passage." So that you can understand you're being chastened by it. Do we ever think that way? One of the worst things we want to do is discipline in the church. Do we ever think it's about saving a soul and it's not a thing personal about it? It's spiritual. Am I committed to God? I may not be committed to God's word. Turn over to 2 Timothy with me if you will. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul brings out to the young man Timothy there. says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince and rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Time out a minute. Where in there does it say, don't talk about hell? One of the things, and this is because I'm getting older. Okay. I have heard so many people get up and say, well, we're going to mention hell on the sermon today. I just hate to even bring it up. Excuse me? There's a heaven and there's a hell. You're going to one or the other. We preach strong on one. We better be strong on the other. And as a result of this, what Paul is saying, you preach the word. Josiah was committed to doing all of what God wanted him to do, including following his word. So what should that mean? Well, while Paul's saying this, I think back to Josiah and say, that's what he's telling Timothy. Be committed to God's word. Preach that word. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. You endure afflictions. You do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I may not be committed to God's word. Why? Because it may not set well with me. I may not like that. I may say I'm committed to it. I may act like at times I'm committed to it. But there might be passages in there I just don't like. And one of those passages might be coming together to assembly. It just may be possible with all things going on that I don't like that. In fact, of the matter, I think about it and think, you know, I look at God's commands of worship and I go back to his word and say, I know what he says. I know what Paul said to the church at Corinth when you come together. And I know what it means about not forsaking the assembly because we're going to exhort and encourage one another. I know what those things mean. I know I'm the worship of spirit and truth. But brother, I want to tell you something. I've not been able to do that over a computer screen. Now, I know that may set some hearts on fire, but do you think God didn't know there was going to be a COVID virus? Do you think he still looked at it and said there wasn't going to be, did he know there was going to be a World War I and a World War II and brethren still came together, still tried to meet? When you come together, when I'm looking at a computer screen, I can't tell your face from my face or get encouraged from you. I'm kind of a hugger guy. COVID's trying to cut me out of that. And if you want to see people scared, just start walking up to them like this. 
But I want to tell you, that's what we need in the brotherhood today. We need help. We need to hug. We need to, to have that association one with another. Now, there are other ways you look at the worship, say roll in the instrument, roll in. Those things are there. Those are Satan's things. But I want to tell you, COVID virus, COVID-19 or whatever they want to call it, is a tool he's using to separate me and you as brothers and sisters. And we've got to come to grips with that. We really do. I know the new handshake is an elbow. And the new way to hug each other is air hugs. But there's no new way to worship under the sun. It's coming together to encourage, to exhort, to participate in singing, to participate in the Lord's Supper, to have the teaching, the preaching. That's what the Lord wants. And the reason He wants it is because He knows we need it. He knows we need Got a question. How bad do you need a Wednesday night? People say, hey, we don't have to go to service. I need it badly. Because Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday up to that time, you're in the world. And the world wants to take you down because you see, to the world, you may be good, but they think you're evil. Because they believe evil is good. And so when we think about these things, am I committed to that? Am I committed to restore a nation? Look over in James 1. And young people, I want you to listen to this especially because I have a special place in my heart for what you go through right now in your life. James 1, 12 through 16. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he is being proved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Look at Titus 3. And let's look at verse 14. Titus 3 and verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Go back to James 1 and verse 22. But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Young people, first of all, I'm going to apologize for my generation. We've let it get this far. We've let it go so far down that right now you're suffering from it. We're going to die out. And our young people are going to have to put up with this mess that we have helped create. Of not standing for the truth. Oh, we stand for it in the building. Where I'm talking about is outside this building. Not speaking up, not going to school boards, not going to town councils, not doing our thing on politics. Christians can't serve in politics. Oh, yes, they can. And they can be honest and faithful and decide to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. We've let it go this far in our generation. Now, the generation before us let it slide too. But right now, our young people, we best be really trying to embed within them. Stay firm. It's going to get tough. It's going to get tougher. Transgenderism? Never even thought about it when I was in high school. Did you? Homosexuality? 
being accepted, being on TV. No. Evil being good and good being evil? No. And yes, it's been that way for years, but look through our communication system, our social medias, what our young people, which are doing this, there will be, by the way, there will be no none of this or none of this in heaven. It won't be there. What we need to get back to is being in a lot of time with our young people and letting them know that this life is not heaven. Heaven is a special place for specially prepared people. And we have to live here to prepare ourselves for that. And then through the mercy of God, because He sent us His grace, we can have it. We need to restore this nation. We need to restore it as fast as we can. And it's not going to be done sitting in pews. I'm sorry. We're going to have to be good soldiers of the Lord. I don't mean go out and start fighting. We're going to have to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, we're going to have to put on those shin guards. We're going to have to take God's word that's sharpened any two-edged sword. We need to be starting now, now, getting involved in the schools or that whole generation is going to be lost, Judges 2.10. It's going to be lost because they will not know God. They will be confused on what's good. They will be confused on what's evil. And I apologize for my generation. I really do. We've been great preaching from the pulpit. We have lacked it going out and practicing in the public, in the town squares. And as a result of that, we have to look and say, I may not be committed to restoring a nation. And I pray and pray and pray for a merciful God on the day of judgment because of that. I may not be committed to being a New Testament Christian when this sin does seem righteous. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. And the Apostle Paul there writing again to Timothy. Timothy's at Ephesus. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created be received, with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God, notice this, is good. And nothing is to be refused, for if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. You know, I think of this and says, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Sometimes it's easier to hear a fellow tell you that the Lord's got some kind of blessing coming for you in the form of dollars. And he's doing it in front of about 25,000 people. And you think, they all can't be wrong, can they? Makes you feel so good. Then you walk out and realize, did he use any scripture to back that up? <laughs> Maybe take three verses. We get deceived, don't we? We let something come up and we, we fall victim to it. I do. You ever met a person that bought a car that didn't get the best deal ever? That's the way it is, right? We couldn't be deceived. A used car seller, and if you're in a used car seller in here, apologize, but that's the way it goes. We wouldn't be deceived by that, would we? I've, I've traded cars my whole life for, I, somebody asked me, who does your brakes? I said, don't know, never have any put on. <laughs> they used to say, where do you buy tires? I said, don't know, I'll get rid of them if they need tires and just trade them in. 
And in all those years, Connie says, have we always gotten a good deal? Sure, hon. 195 times we've gotten great deals through my lifetime. No, we get deceived. And unfortunately, we do. But let me tell you, there's something that we don't get deceived on. Turn into the Word of God. Talking to our brothers and sisters and studying it. We may have just, Mitch and I have known each other for 173 years. And we discuss things, every, I guess, every week on the phone, Mitch. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's some scripture. We don't agree on everything. But you know what we do agree on? Let's find out what the Lord says about it. And let's humble ourselves. We're not going to be deceived by the Word of God. We may have different opinions on things. Oh, Craig here is from Alabama. He probably thinks the tide's the number one team in the world. <laughs> he evidently hadn't heard of the Cream and Crimson of Indiana. And so I look at that and say, we're going to have things. That are, but brethren, you don't get deceived by the word of God. That's one of the things that I tell Mitch on a regular basis about this congregation. You've got leadership. You've got teaching going on. It stands out among congregations in this country. Unfortunately, I travel around too much to know that. But it does. Shauna know that. He travels around. It's firm. It's strong. You will not be deceived as long as you stay within the Word of God. And if you stay within the Word of God, be committed to it. Be committed to doing what is right in His eyes. Be committed to His worship. Be committed to helping restore a nation one person at a time in your world. One person at a time is how we will restore this nation. Lessons from Josiah. They ring deep within my heart. I pray they ring within your heart. God has a simple plan for us. And I appreciate this. This shows how merciful He really is. He has a plan that we can all understand. We can hear and our faith will grow by hearing. We can believe because of what He has told us. And the proof. When you think about it, think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was seen by over 500 brethren. That would be double the size of this congregation. And then by 12, and then by 12, and then last of all, by Paul. What a testimony. Not deceived. And he says, you can have part of that. Just, just believe in me. Believe who I am. Hear the word that God has set forth for you. Because Jesus said in John 12, I came with the words of God. I didn't come with my own words. I came with his word. And when you hear it, change. Repent. We'll get rid of your sin. Repent. And then confess that I'm him, him. And brethren, it's not a one-time confession. It's a lifelong living. That's what we need to think of. Be baptized. Meet him in the water grave of baptism. Put him on. Be adopted as a child. And then be faithful to him until death. We encourage you to do that. I don't know how many here have not done that. But we encourage you to do that. That is where salvation is found. In the body of Jesus Christ. He will meet you in the water grave of baptism. Remove your sins with that good repentant heart that you've got. You will rise up and walk in newness of life. You'll walk among brethren who care for you and love you. And brethren, if you're here, brothers or sisters, and your commitment has faltered, we encourage you to come back. There's nothing like coming back before your brothers and sisters and say, I need help. I need prayers. And have them pray for you and put their loving arms around you that is part of the merciful God we have. Lessons from Josiah.
Give your heart to God while we stand and while we sing.